Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. What's up? What's, what's, what's up? What's up with you? What is up? What's up? What people can't see is that when you do that voice, you kind of crouch, you kind of hunker down like Gollum, and then you're yeah. peering over the Gollum top. is good, actually. <clears throat> I like that. <laughs> and then you sort of peer at me over the top of your monitor screen, and it's quite creepy. Thanks. I can do creepy quite well. You can. If I know. I've spoken my no, no, we don't. You like my normal voice? I don't like the voice that you call your normal voice. But ever since you spoilt it by doing the thing about the dustbins with the pink, the pinky and perky thing, yeah, no. At two o'clock Stop in it. the morning, I'll be outside your window. That bit mm-hmm. that was quite fun. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Who's this? Andrew Penman's going first. LTL and FTE. By the way, if you just join us, that's long-term listener, first-time emailer. In case you need a kind of a, a guide. Dropping you a note to say thanks for the impeccably clearly signpost klaxons for your spoilerful discussion of Star Wars, uh, which we did on the podcast yeah. last week. Please tell me he's not writing in to complain about the klaxons. Having enough of an interest in the film to hopefully see it sometime soon. We well, haven't got that much of an interest, have you? No. If you haven't seen it already. And more importantly, having a five-year-old at home who's just discovering the excitement of the Star Wars universe. Probably too young, I think. It meant I could utilise utilize my generic fruit-based thing... Um, which has got a skip 15 seconds forward function to avoid hearing anything whilst not missing any nuggets of gold. So my final 10 minutes of last week's show, skip, 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 turns out to be looked, skip, skip, skip. They found the voice which said, come, skip, skip, skip. <laughs> what, else, what else can you say? Quiet. Thanks, gents. Keep up the good work and hello to Jason. <laughs> That's the way it goes. That's what that little button is for. Yes. Jack Meek from Porter Down. I was travelling on the Tube at a peak travel time on Friday evening. Having turned my... Generic da, 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 device up to 11T stupid. Da, da, da. All the other sounds have been drowned out. Therefore, upon hearing your siren, again, this was the warning sound for the spoiler, yeah, yeah. I very nearly bolted from my chair, fearing a security alert mid journey deep underneath the streets of London. Uncertain as to why no one else seemed troubled by the impending danger, it wasn't until the stern voice of your colleague, that's you, yeah. advising that spoilers were imminent, that I settled back into my seat, where I was immediately relaxed by the delightful music that accompanies your DVD of the week. Could I therefore suggest that in future you warn listeners that you're about to use your klaxon? <laughs> what, do we have a klaxon klaxon? I'm sure there are many others travelling Wasn't through... that a, a, a new wave band in the early 1980s, klaxon klaxon? Almost certainly should have been. Travelling through rail stations and airports that could do without any additional... They support Rima, Rima, and Duran, Duran. Can I just say something very quickly on the subject of uh, announcements on trains? On the train this morning, because I get the train in from uh, Southampton in the morning, and uh, the guard was... What time train do you normally catch? Just in case I want to lurk on the same platform and get the seat next to you. I get a very early train. Hello. Are you Mark (laughs) Kermode? Oh, please don't do that. Anyway, so I was on the train this morning, and uh, the guys, you know, the I have to say, the guards are always fantastic on that uh, on that service, and particularly though this morning, the guard, you know, when they do the announcements, and they usually say, you know, this is the guard. Well, the guy did the announcement, only he didn't say the word the, and I was half asleep, and this voice went, "This is guard." <laughs> <laughs> It's the voice of God. Well, it's this been is a good God. Life. 
There's been a delay at Clapham Junction. It's not, not the place you want to end up in. It was just... Uh, Jamie Olive, St John's Ambulance Award. I took the opportunity of a day trip to Ireland this week. Didn't we have a lovely time the day we went to Ireland? Beautiful day. We had lunch on the way and all for under a pound. You know, on the way back, I cuddled with Jack and we opened a bottle of cider, singing a few of our favourite tunes as the wheels went round. Can Fiddler's Dram go on the playlist? Fiddler's Dram. You You see, that's the difference between you and me is that I remember the words, but you remember the band. Everything went well up to the point I was passing over Birmingham on my way home. Picture the scene, eyes closed, listening to the bickering going on between your good selves, looking forward to the spoiler-tastic section on Star Wars. As for the first time in a number of years, I'd actually gone to see a film at the pictures. Now, remember, I'm 30,000 feet up. All of a sudden, this alarm to end all alarms goes off. I sit bolt upright to see what on earth is happening, expecting to see masks dropping from above, only to realise that it was in my head, so to speak. Relieved, I had a little chuckle to myself as you went on to question why... So and so. And then whether was related to... <laughs> it turned out. If you should decide to go down this route again, please, can you have a warning to say there's going to be an impending warning in order to avoid, avoid mid-air palpitations? So basically what we have to have is a staggered series of warnings, each getting a little bit louder, each one telling you. I think we should just have a thing which says, this is God. Yeah. We should have a, a warning awning for anyone who, uh, who needs further details. Is this someone else's confused? This is Isabel, Tom and Alice. Short-term listener since March 2015. Wow, that is new. Though I've been catching up on your excellent back catalogue, I've made my way through three years' worth, which has provided me with a wonderful distraction through my very nauseous pregnancy. Nauseous. That's a three-year pregnancy. That's not good, is it? (laughs) Which brings me to your latest podcast. On Friday early evening, it became evident that I was going into labour. On being told at 11pm that I couldn't stay in hospital and I had to labour at home. Is that a verb? I labour, you labour. It must be, yeah. Anyway, I had to labour at home on paracetamol and codeine for at least four hours. I was at least relieved to know that I could finish off your podcast and hopefully drift off to sleep and get some rest before returning to hospital. Whilst no doubt the oral warnings provided to your listeners served a useful and important purpose in relation to spoilers, next time, please, could you consider the small proportion of your audience who are occupying a temporary part of the church, the labouring lacuna, who might be just drifting off whilst experiencing their first pain-free moment for a while, to be woken up by the numerous loud klaxons. These klaxons, which we did for the best possible reasons, have caused so many problems... Exactly. I should end by saying our first daughter, Alice, was born on Saturday at 7.54am. She's looking forward to her first of many podcasts this coming Friday. Keep up the good work. Isabel and Tom, congratulations, particularly to Isabel. And Alice, welcome to your first podcast. I I hope it works out well. We should dedicate the whole of this podcast to Alice. Okay. Can I give you a bit of, um, sorry, slightly left-turn movie trivia quickly on the subject? Nothing to do with what I've just been... No, it's slightly to do with that. On the subject of This Is Guard... um, do you know the famous but utterly apocryphal story about John Wayne and the greatest story ever told? Yes. Okay. Then move on. I won't tell it. Okay. Try that again. Do you know the famous utterly apocryphal story about John Wayne and the greatest uh, story ever told? Now, normally when you ask me questions, the answer is always no. So I no, I don't think I do. No, but you do, don't you? I do. But I'm I not. Don't, gonna, I don't. I'm not going to do it then. Tell it. Tell no, no, because it, I, I can only tell it if I believe that you haven't heard it. The polite thing would have been for you to say no, but now that you've said yes, people can just Google it. Oh, please tell me. No. Tell me your story. Not doing it. About Not a performing monkey. Well, I tell you what, why don't you tell me the story? Well, the story, as I understand it, yes. is he says, 
after Christ has died on the cross, that he is told to say, his line is, surely this was the Son of God. Truly. Truly this was the Son of God. And the director says, George you need Stevens. to do it with more awe. And so he says, oh, <laughs> this was the Son of God. <laughs> not true, but there we go. doesn't matter whether One. it's not true or not. It's, it's, a, it's a myth, and yeah. there is truth in myth, is there not? <laughs> but not in that myth. Not in that case, no, none at all. It's all hope. It is apocryphal now. That's good. I like that. Oh, is that, thank a, is that it... an actual movie? No, I just... That, that's just a joke. No, that was just a quip. That's very good. The best one you're going to get today. Uh, right, OK, well, we, I think we've warmed up. In fact, we might have gone peak early. That's, that's what's happened anyway. Just in case we haven't, here's the rest of it. Hey. How's it going? It's fine. What? Uh, welcome to the program. What have you become, like West Side Story? No, 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 yes. Is that West Side Story? Yeah, isn't it? I don't know, I was just checking. Yeah. We haven't normally burst into musicals this early in the show. We when normally... you're a jet, you're a jet. No, mm, no, still didn't ring any bells. But you don't like musicals. Well, I would always say I don't like musicals, and then I realise all but the you musicals do. that I really, really like. Yeah. And I think, oh, actually... Actually, you do like musicals. I really do like musicals. <laughs> and EP... Uh, EP very, on Sunday. EP on Sunday. Driving back from Cornwall exactly. wouldn't be the same this without gonna, EP. This is going to be, uh, I think, hopefully, a very interesting programme. I mean, hopefully, they're all very interesting, but we don't usually have two guests, uh, and when we do have two guests, sometimes there's one really fabulous movie, and there's one sort of... Less than fabulous movie. You know, just say that when you said that, you started to sound like David Thewlis in Naked. This is going to be like a really interesting. It was like, yeah, that's the worst job in the world. Could they just not get a very tall monkey to do that? Or a very short monkey with a very long gizmo? You were doing that percussion. Anyway, so we have the multi Oscar nominated Leonardo DiCaprio talking uh, about The Revenant. And we have the very talented Lenny. Oscar nominated. Oscar nominated. What did I say? You're very talented, but also Oscar nominated. Oscar nominated, which happened merely moments after our interview. But it's all right. No, no, no. Lenny Abrahamson. Yes. Is also Oscar nominated. I was just getting to him. Okay. Should we start again? Yeah. Anyway, Leonardo's on and Lenny Abrahamson's on, and mm-hmm. he's going to be talking about Room because he's Oscar nominated, and it's a, both movies are fabulous, mm-hmm. and both interviews are very interesting. They are very, very interesting, and you Thank did you. both of them, and you Thank did you. both of them very well. But you're going to do your bits very well as well. I'm Thank looking you. forward to mm-hmm. see what you make of all the new. Your bits are already in the bag. This show is basically it's just like a, it's a breeze for you, isn't it? Sean McDardle says, since the Church of Wittertainment has started landscaping, I was wondering whether there was a room for a pilot's pagoda. Ideally, at the end of Generation Jetty, as my dad, Steve, is an airline pilot. He's my greatest convert achievement and has been signing off every Tannoy announcement. Hello to Jason Isaacs. <laughs> Get this, since 2005. Wow. To the bemusement of the uninitiated. That's a lot of uninitiated out there. He's only actually been asked about it once. Either Wittertainment has a massive following in his airline's customer base or everyone is just too embarrassed to call him up on it. I was wondering whether this was a thing that was unique to my dad or if Wittertainment had heard the show bleeding into other unexpected areas of life. Uh, Sean, thank you very much indeed. Um, You know what we need to do? We need to get Hello to Jason Isaac said in space. What? We need to get it said in space. Okay. We've conquered, we've conquered the oceans, we've conquered the airwaves, we've conquered the land, but we haven't had anyone say hello to Jason Isaacs in space. If only there was a... a... There are enough people up there at the moment. Okay. By the way, uh, Sean finishes his email. I mean, if you've heard Sean's dad say hello to Jason Isaacs... Please let again, us know. There must be many, many people. Dad's favourite trivia is that the opening scene of Blade Runner... Now, you will know this because you've made those films about it. Mm-hmm 
is based on the Middlesbrough skyline. Is this true, Mark? And are there any other dystopian futures based on post-industrial towns? Anyway, I'm not interested in the last bit, but is the Blade Runner opening scene based on Middlesbrough? Uh, If so, I didn't know that. Well, we'll find out. Um, I'm sure we will now get an absolute welter of emails from Middlesbrough saying, how could you not know that that's the case? Alex in Fleet. Terry Gilliam came up with the idea for Brazil whilst on a beach in... Grimsby? No, Rill or somewhere like that. Okay. Um, Alex in Fleet, I was wondering if a recent incident might qualify as a wittertainment-related injury or possibly wittertainment-related incident. It's Saturday evening like most others. You'll you'll get this Mm -hmm. because you are in this bracket. Okay. Saturday evening, unobtrusive, inoffensive, ever so slightly damp. The kids are asleep, the dogs were slumbering, and I was introducing my lovely partner, Michelle, to a long-time favourite and cinematic pleasure, The Usual Suspects. Oh, yeah. Approximately three-quarters of the way through said cinematic pleasure, Dog 2 raised her head and gave me the if you don't take me out right now, I swear I'm going to pee on your slippers look. What else is a doting dog parent to do, despite the torrential downpour of the moment, but to take Dog 2 out for walkies? Walkies was not a success. Having only made it around the corner, Dog 2 sniffed something overly delicious in a book. (laughs) And in a move that would awe Michael Bay, leapt into action. During the very wet and messy attempt to extricate Dog 2 from foliage, my back decided it had had enough of working properly and a little holiday was in order again. Oh dear. Barely making it back to the house, I flopped onto the lounge floor and inquired, less than calmly, if we had any more of those wonderful, super powerful muscle relaxant slash painkiller meds <laughs> given to me by the GP the last time this happened. <laughs> It was whilst I lay there waiting for the good stuff to kick in that I noticed the DVD had been switched off and in my absence, Michelle had been distracted and was watching a movie on ITV and then I realised, shock horror, that it was Sex and the City 2 that she had chosen. (laughs) She stopped the usual suspect. And I was trapped and I was unable to move. Apparently, second apartments were kept empty and (laughs) full-time nannies were kept employed and red carpets were trod and money was wasted and shakes were something. And then in a moment of exquisite timing, the drugs kicked in. And the rest of the movie is a complete blur. <laughs> Needless to say, words about vapid consumerism, worker exploitation and obscene wastes of wealth were had the following day. Order has been restored. The usual suspects has been watched. All is well again. But it could have been much, much worse. I might actually have had to sit or lie through the whole thing. So basically the, the moral of this story is Sex in the City 2 is tolerable if heavily medicated. Yes, which would you rather have, excruciating back pain or watch Sex in the City 2? Uh, right, box office top 10. It's high time we did some of this. Yeah. Uh, Bridge of Spice is at 10, Oscar nominated. Yes, funnily enough, I, I watched it again just the other night because uh, some uh, other members of my family wanted to watch it. And it, it really is a fantastically solid piece of solid piece of work. I think that... Uh, that Mar- isn't, but that isn't... That's, a fantastically solid piece. Of no, I don't. But I don't mean it like that. I mean, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed it. But it's what well, I mean. It's it's the craftsmanship. You just you feel, you know you feel the craftsmanship. Mark Rylance is great. You said an interesting thing, which was after the interview, you said um, it's interesting, isn't it, that they talked about Mark Rylance sort of doing that less is more thing, and and it is all in the pauses. It is all. In, it's not in the line. Would it help? It's in the pause mm-hmm. before the line. Would it help? And he is great. Number nine in the heart of the sea. I I wish that I liked it more because I do like Ron Howard despite Angels and Demons and it is an interesting story and they have a bash at taking a story about whaling and you know making it into a kind of sympathetic parable about something else but it is I have to say problematically visual 
And although I saw it in the 2D version, I did think that it looked an awful lot to, you know, it's not green screeny isn't the right word anymore, but it just looked too much like there was a disparity between what was happening in the water tank and what was happening in the background. And I did, I never believed in the, in, in the CG whale, which, which was a shame because there were some good performances in there, not least from Killian Murphy. Bit of an CG whale is a whole lot better than the CG town that they've just. I know, I know. Yeah, well, actually, the town doesn't even look like a CG town. The town looks like somebody painted it. Well, Paul badly. Green uh, on his email says, um, the first hour really put me off with an over-reliance on special effects as well as an unusual amount of rule-breaking from children and the audience in my independent cinema. However, as the movie progressed, the story became interesting, making it an OK film. And the, and the performances... The performances are good, even though some of the accents are pretty ropey. The performances are good. For me, the, 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 the show stealer was Killian Murphy, who I just think is... I mean, I think he's mesmerically watchable anyway. But I and think the older really Gleason. Yeah, Gleason's good. Gleason does do that thing about giving you the sense that he's somebody who wants to tell his story and doesn't want to tell his story at the same time. And I like the way that's sort of played with the idea of the ancient mariner. Um, so, you know. Uh, Hunger Games, uh, and J. Parker I think we've covered eight. that. We've done that. Good Dinosaur is at seven. Well, just to say that I do, I do think that all the... I mean, it was interesting that um, the, the 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 short film has got some awards attention, but The Good Dinosaur itself is the film that you get if you start making a movie and then you stop and then you rewrite and then you start and then you lose the original director and then you lose the original cast and then you come back. I mean, that it kind of looks like that. Snoopy and Charlie Brown, Peanuts movie is at number six. Ben Hollands on an email. The Peanuts comic strip is something I've held close to my heart since I was 11. Yeah where my dad lent me his old paperbacks from the 60s and 70s. As a result, I was ready to hate this film, but was so pleased to discover that it was really quite good. It's interesting to hear Mark talk so ambivalently about the film's wryness. OK. Personally, I found it to be very refreshing in a time where it seemed animated movies are too afraid to go 20 seconds without a punchline. Mm -hmm. For me, the Peanuts movie's gentler tone showed a real faith in its characters, its story and its audience. The ending was a little too saccharine for the realist philosophy of Schultz's original comics. But as my dad and I agreed, it was a kid's film after all. Oh, and I think a welcome change of pace from the wacky, hyperactive storytelling typical of animated features at the moment. It's a very interesting point. I may have expressed myself badly. Uh, when I was talking about the wryness, that's the element that I like. And in fact, if anything, I wanted more of that. And there was, when we get into the, <coughs> pardon me, the sort of 3G, the 3D sequences, the flying sequences, the, the, the pop music stuff, that for me is when it falls apart. I think its strongest suit is when it has the confidence and the courage to be wry, to be something which, you know, which causes you to smile rather than laugh out loud, which is, of course, actually what the, you know, what's, what's so deeply embedded in the comic strip itself. So I, I agree that, that that was the thing that it got right. I think it, it diverges from that for obvious reasons because clearly there is a loss of confidence in that holding the attention of a younger audience and that's why you end up getting more of the kind of spectacular flying visuals, the Snoopy versus the Red Baron stuff. Who did that song, Snoopy versus the Red Baron? Oh, there you go. Um, three Dog? Just, no, it wasn't Three Dog Night. No, apparently originally single by the Royal Guardsmen, but I don't remember it being... Yeah, no, it could be them. No, but I thought, it was, was it not reissued by somebody else? Somebody else with the word dog in? No. No. Okay, fine. As far as I know. I didn't think for one minute instantly that Three Dog did Snoopy versus the Red Baron, but wasn't there something? What was the what was the band who did one more one more night? Just one more night. Yellow Yellow, yellow dog. dog. Yellow okay, Dog. Okay, all the dogs are getting confused in my head. <laughs> okay. Snoopy Yellow Dog, that's fun. Put them all on the playlist. Put them all it's on the playlist. Be fine. Joy's at number five. I really like Joy and 
The funny thing about it is that a lot of people have been very sniffy about it and said it's all over the place. And, uh, you know, somebody made the brilliant the brilliant joke that it's Aaron Mopovich. Um, I, what I really like about it is its shambolic quality, but also the fact that I did genuinely care about what happens to Joy and her magic miracle mop. Um, I think that it, it's one of those films that when you try to describe, it sounds even more bonkers than it, than it actually is. What? You're it not does. A... I'm nodding because I'm agreeing. OK, fine. Have you, have you, you've seen it? No. Yes? Oh, OK, fine. It does sound bonkers. It does sound completely bonkers. But it's it's really entertaining. And I thought Robert De Niro did some of the best work he's done in a long time. And I just, I just, I cared about whether or not when they go on the shopping television channel, whether or not they sell thousands of mops. And that was the moment which I thought, OK, this is working. And as I said, it came out the same week as Hateful Eight. And whatever else is great about Hateful Eight... I didn't care about any of the characters. I did care about Joy and her mop. Callum Simpson. Uh, last week I visited Glasgow's uh, GFT cinema. Uh, in the a com- beautiful cinema, In the company of my mum and sister to see Joy. Unfortunately, we were left sadly disappointed. Oh, dear. OK. Firstly, the film is a prime example of the style over substance dilemma, which has permeated David O. Russell's oeuvre. The oeuvre. The oeuvre. The voiceover was unnecessary, the surreal dream sequences a little misplaced, and the gap between the two instances of success and genuine elation far too far apart. Mark used the word agitated in a positive sense last week, yet I feel this is the right word used incorrectly. The story itself is remarkable enough and the embellishments therefore seemed unnecessary, slowing down the incredible triumphs of our central character. I didn't feel agitated by whether Joy could demonstrate the self-ringing mop on TV, but rather by the overly long sleepwalk towards the conclusion. Michael Veal says, initially I didn't want to see Joy, it had mixed reviews, and a film about the invention of a self-ringing mop didn't exactly have me rushing to the cinema. (laughs) As a fan of Jennifer Lawrence, and because there was literally nothing else on, I belatedly gave it a go. I'm so glad that I did. What a terrific film. I never believed a mop demonstration could be so emotionally affecting. There we we go. Thank you. Thank you. Having seen the main character struggle throughout the film, I was strongly invested in the outcome of her story. The best films are those that surprise you, and Joy did just that. Not only was the film riveting, it also served as an inspiration to creative types everywhere to never give up. Very good. Very good. Well, thank you for those. Uh, 1967, a Spanish band, Los Mustang, recorded a version of Bloody Red Baron in uh, Spanish. But I think the version that we were thinking of from 73 is by the Hot Shots. Ringing any bells? Uh, I think I've just got the Royal Guardsman version, but anyway. Okay. But who knows? Maybe we can explore some of these differences later. The song inspired the title of Kim Newman's novel, The Bloody Red Baron. Very good. So uh, we've got the Danish girls at number four. So... It was interesting because we were talking about the Danish girl last week, although it had come out uh, over the, the Christmas period, and we had an um, interview with uh, Eddie Redmayne, who, of course, once again, is being well represented uh, at the uh, during awards season. And w- what was most fascinating for me was the emails that we had uh, from listeners talking about the way in which they felt the film did or didn't adequately represent its subject matter. I mean, the most, uh, the most astute one, and I'm, I'm sorry I forget the, uh, the, the emailer's name, was saying that actually the fact that we, that we see the story to some extent through the eyes of Alicia Vikander's character, incidentally Alicia Vikander has been nominated Best Supporting Actress, despite the fact that she's clearly the lead actress, um, in a way meant that the story wasn't taking on uh, the uh, the Elba sto- the, the, the Lily Elba story as its central thing. Actually, it, 
it had an outsider to it. I've been thinking about that a lot, and I do think that's right. Whether or not that's a strength or a weakness is a, diff is a different thing, but it is, it is true that the point of view of the story isn't the point of view of Lily, and that may be significant. Uh, a couple of emails, both of them anonymous. Um, first one uh, says this, a friend of mine recently insisted uh, on me going to see the Danish girl due to both of us being ourselves transgender. I was already wary of Eddie Redmayne's casting as the film had been positioned with the clear intention to gain Academy Award notices and could have been an excellent showcase for a talented transgender actor. Despite these misgivings, I tried to go into the film with an open mind. I left with a mixed bag of thoughts going through my head. While Eddie Redmayne gave a passable performance, the real star of the show was Alicia Vikander, who was absolutely fantastic as Lily's lover. However, the film ended up buckling under the weight of its own worthiness and setting. The sets and costumes, while beautifully designed and built, ended up overshadowing what the film should have been about, Lily's discovery of herself and what she goes through in order to become the person she always should have been. There is little grit to the film, and when the scene... And the scene where Lily faces abuse in public feels like a token scene of violence there to try and draw emotion when, at least to me, there was no investment in the character to begin with. On the whole, a disappointment, but not without its merits. Okay. Uh, and uh, this one, uh, again, as I said, it's another anonymous email. Uh, Doctors, initially the film was one I had thought I might not have rushed to see, as in recent years, my dad has been through his own journey and is now living as a woman. Across our family in the last three years, this has affected not only our relationship with my dad for each of us in significant but different ways, but also the relationships we have with each other. Much of the correspondence you read out last week was from those who were themselves trans or in relationships with those who were, and some of the criticism many expressed was that they didn't feel that the changes Eddie Redmayne's character experienced matched or accurately reflected their own. Although I'm unable to offer any insight on this, I would like to say that in my own position, I did feel that telling the story through the eyes of Alicia Vikander was something that enabled me to identify far more than I'd expected to with this particular story. Although the film is one of change, I thought it was accurate to portray and recognise that the significance of the change and its impact is not only felt or limited to those in Lily's position, but those who are close to them. The emotions Vikander was able to express felt familiar and entirely authentic to me, even though I have seen in my own family just how uniquely each of us have felt at a time that is often and sadly very difficult to adjust to. My own connection to the subject matter aside... I felt the film was beautifully made and told the story in a way that could and should appeal to a mass audience. The Oscar talk about the two leads seems to me to be perfectly justified in my humble opinion and I hope it is appreciated as much by the mass audience as it was by my wife and me. Well, you know, thank you. That's a, a really wonderfully lucid email. Again, interesting that what it's focusing on is the the viewpoint of the film, whether the viewpoint of the film is uh, the, that of Alicia Vikander's character or that of Eddie Redmayne's character, and on your final point about the Oscars, obviously that was sent in before the before the nominations, I think, because as you know, they are uh, Eddie Redmayne. I mean, you had a theory that Eddie Redmayne is going to be two for two, isn't it? It's going to it's going to be a... well. There, I mean, there was just some talk about it, and obviously that hasn't happened since Tom Hanks did it. So it, it you know, and it, it it rarely happens. But he's clearly not the favourite. But no, it's just I think the, the point in in the second email is an interesting one. That is, this was intended for a mass audience. Mm, this yeah, is a story. absolutely. A bit like again, a bit like Philadelphia was it explaining the AIDS story and someone with AIDS to a big wide stream audience, which mm -hmm. hadn't happened particularly at that time. This is for a mainstream audience and, and maybe it's a different kind of movie because of that. Yeah, I agree. Danish Girls at Four, Daddy's Home at Three, the Cliff Richard song. <laughs> you know, watching 
a, a sort of a video of the Cliff Richard song would have been shorter and probably would have had more jokes in it. Daddy's Home didn't have no jokes at all. It is, however, clearly one sketch stretched over the you know the best part of two hours. And whereas there is fun in watching Will Ferrell, as I have to learn to call him rather than Ferrell, and uh, Marky Mark uh, doing their weird stuff in The Other Guys, Daddy's Home was a bit of a trudge. However, I didn't not laugh. So is that a... Yeah, you, you understand what that is. Yeah, yeah, I didn't, yeah, but... I didn't so what not... Does that, what does that sound like? Uh, I, there were three or four moments when I went... <laughs> OK. Uh, Hateful Eight is at number two. Let me just do some correspondence here. Do you have anything from anyone who saw it in 70 mil? Uh, we'll just go through yeah, and... Yeah, 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 I think there is. Okay. I'll just reorder for you, sir. No, 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 don't. Just... Arabella says, uh, Tarantino back on form, stylish, beautifully shot in 70 mil, funny and with great performances. As it is so stylized, the violence does not shock and comes laced with dark humour. Nearly 25 years since Reservoir Dogs and maybe Michael Madsen is carrying them a little more than Tim Roth. <laughs> but mo- both were on Yeah, but Michael form. Madsen didn't play... Set didn't play Seth Blatter. So and, ultimately, he, and then ultimately Tim Roth did. And that's like the final put down, <laughs> isn't it, in any argument? I know. So what you want? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Roland Evers, greetings from the Netherlands. I was really disappointed by The Hateful Eight and thinking about it actually quite frustrates me. Yes, the cinematography was brilliant and the acting pretty good, but overall, Tarantino's eighth film is a mess and possibly his worst movie yet. Structurally, it's all over the place. After the setup, which basically is the first half of the movie, we get a mystery which is then almost immediately solved, followed by <laughs> bloody empty violence. The script simply feels like a first draft that still needs a lot of work. Even the dialogue isn't particularly great. Uh, or funny. We know for a fact that it's, you know, at least a sort of fourth or fifth draft because a version of it was performed on stage in April 2014 from which this has done. So we know that that this is the polished version. And just one more uh, before you. Amelia Moses in Montreal. Initially, I wasn't going to see Hateful Eight. I'm a bit fed up with Tarantino and the trailer did nothing for me. But in the end, the chance to go and see a film projected in glorious 70 mil along with a classic overture and intermission, won me over. Unfortunately, the film is truly terrible. The performances are pure pantomime, and the film isn't about anything. I could have probably forgiven the film if it wasn't for the fact that Tarantino is such a self-indulgent... <laughs> ..director. I mean, he goes as far as to narrate the film just so he can hear the sound of his own voice. It was a waste of celluloid. The Again, I've seen Hateful Eight twice now, and I, all my reservations about it absolutely stand. It, I think it is visually very impressive, even when it's indoors. But I, the comment in that email about it is about nothing is is the point. That is the sort of default Tarantino setting that it's all very postmodern. It's all very self-referential. It is all about what it's all about itself. And despite the fact that the film is set in the aftermath of the Civil War, and despite the fact that there are what look like sort of pointed speeches um, about uh, you know racial disharmony, in the end, it is about nothing. And that that for me is a problem, particularly when you make movies the length that Tarantino does that the lack of substance starts to grate. I do think it's very stylish. I think there are some very good performances in there. I thought Sam Jackson, incidentally, was terrific. Uh, even when Sam Jackson is doing a speech which reads very much like a reprise of uh, better written speeches from, for example, True Romance, which, of course, um, Tony Scott directed from Quentin Tarantino's script. But it is it, that, it, that is true. In the end, it is much ado about nothing. And that's the problem when you're making something so witty. That said... The idea of going to see a 70 millimetre roadshow performance of almost anything 
is there is a real sort of frisson with that. Just a couple of emails about Star Wars The Force Awakens, which is still the number one, and John Mills makes this point from our Facebook page. Star Wars The Force Awakens is like Brian Adams. It's going to stay at number one for as long as it, <laughs> for as long as it likes. It wouldn't surprise me if we're still watching at the cinema in the summer. Uh, Linda McIntyre in Ballston Spa, New York, went to see this uh, with my husband and 12-year-old son. They both enjoyed it very much. I liked it, thought it was a good movie, but then I thought the same thing when I saw it the first time in 1978. The movie doesn't just reference the first movie, nor is it an homage to the first movie. It, it is, is the first, first movie. movie, which is fine, but the proof of how good or bad the sequels are will be when a new Star Wars movie is released. 15 minutes in, I thought, OK, I haven't watched Star Wars recently, so it'll be nice to see it again on a big screen <laughs> rather than on the TV at home. Okay. 85058, mayo at bbc.co.uk. i just say very quickly on that, it'll be at number one for as long as it wants to be at number one. Do you remember when uh, Love Is All Around, the Wet, Wet, Wet song, was at number one yes. for so long that in the end they wet, 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 asked for it to be discontinued? Because even they, Cause even they had, had, had enough of it. I'm just a little consultation and that ain't going on our playlist. What? Love Is All Around? The uh, unless it's the, Can we have the Bill Nye version? Oh, OK. Fair, yes, fair enough. Christmas Is All Around, no? Well, it's a Christmas song. It is a bit of a Christmas song, but we could put that... It's been a bit and, of a Christmas song. It is a Christmas song. And the original. Hmm. Anyway, on the subject, we should love actually will lead us on to something else in a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and we'll talk about Alan Rickman later in the programme. Uh, also, our guest, Lenny Abrahamson, talking about Room and more drama on the way because uh, we get another chance to speak to Leonardo DiCaprio on the show. Now, I uh, did this interview uh, yesterday and frustratingly, uh, it was done merely... At 1.30, didn't you? It was one twenty <laughs> to one thirty-five, and we thought if he goes to the loo before the interview, if they're running late, which they normally are, yeah. it will coincide with the announcement of the Oscars and I'll be able to say, well, Leonardo, I'm delighted to say you've been nominated as Best Actor. Yeah. Sadly, that fell to some other person. Although, can I just say that he was he was, he was the bookie's favourite by... So, so, I mean... It, there was never really any doubt that he was going to get nominated. Yeah, but imagine if I'd chanced it and it hadn't happened. I think that would have been... <laughs> oh, you should have just done that. It's extremely bad. I think what you should have done is you should have said, so, Leonardo, um, disappointed about the Oscar nomination? Who'd have thought you'd have got <laughs> overlooked <laughs> yes. again? Anyway. And, and Will Ferrell is up, which is that so must strange. Be a and Hugh Grant, are you surprised? <laughs> anyway, uh, it does come up in the interview, uh, obviously, but we've got a few things to discuss before. I'd love to see The Revenant starring Hugh Grant. I, 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 I really don't I think... think. As, you want Hugh Grant as the bear? <laughs> no, Hugh Grant. I was attacked by a bear. That's not a very good I, thing. I, 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 anyway, the chat with Leonardo is on the way. First of all, uh, a clip from The Revenant, uh, and this particular uh, section features him and uh, a fantastic Donald Gleeson. I need a horse and a gun. No, you need rest and something to eat. I'm going after him. No, he'll never find it without me. Wait till morning, I'll have a day's head start and get away. No, he won't. He's afraid. He knows how far I came for him. Same as that elk, when they get afraid, they run deep into the woods. I got him trapped, he just... He doesn't know it yet. How can you be so sure? He has everything to lose. I can't let you go back out there. Not again. I ain't afraid to die anymore. And that was a clip from The Revenant. I'm delighted to say Leonardo DiCaprio is back on the show. Leonardo, how are you, sir? Good. Good to see you again. Are you happy? Am I happy? Yeah, yeah I'm a happy guy. When I was walking in uh, to do uh, the interview with you, it was a bit rainy and it was quite cold and it was quite dark. 
And I was about to start complaining. And then I thought, no, <laughs> I've just seen The Revenant. I know what Leonardo went through. And now is not the time to complain about anything. Uh, t- so uh, tell us a little bit about the story of Hugh Glass. Although I don't think, are you actually referred to as Hugh at any stage in the movie? I think Glass is what I'm referred to throughout most of the film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it was an interesting, it was an interesting uh, subject to do a movie about because so little is known about this man historically. It's um, he's almost like a Paul Bunyan type of campfire legend that's been told from generation to generation. And I think what was most fascinating about him, for certainly the new frontiersman in America at that time is his ability to conquer or adapt to nature, the savagery of nature. And here is this man in in this sort of lawless landscape, gets mauled by a bear. He's travels through hundreds of miles of freezing cold wilderness to reap revenge on the men that did him wrong. Is you know, it was the first wave of capitalism out west. You know, this was before President Polk made United States sea to shining sea. So it was very much like the Amazon. You had French and English. And, so it's 1823. Yes, yes. Yeah, had, it was a fur trapping environment. But you had, it was, it was um, you know, they had indigenous cultures there. It was still native landscape. And here you have this new frontiersman, this new American that's able to go into the lands, survive the toughest and harshest elements, and and. and come out alive so it was so little is known historically because there was no writers at this time period there was only journals of fur trappers mm-hmm. to give us an understanding of what this landscape was like so it was kind of like doing a science fiction movie in a lot of ways uh, we had to recreate what we thought you know you know sort of uh, etchings and and journals and and people's sort of uh Native Native American stories to give us yeah. a picture of what this world was like and there, there was a book that came out uh, the Revenant, uh, a novel of revenge by Michael Punk. There was yeah. a movie in '71, Man yeah. in the Wilderness. Is, mm-hmm. Did you use any of that, or have you kind of started again and gone back to those original etchings that you were talking about? Yeah, I think we kind of started again. I, I, there was a, there was, there were. I saw the movie, I read the book, but more than anything, it was about a, a lot of these nostalgic historians that we had, guys that really liked to submerge themselves in nature, these mountain men that liked to reenact this time period, reenact what it was like to live in these conditions. They taught us the most, but for me, it, it took on all these other these other meanings. It was, it was so much about, you know, uh, uh, the, co- the colonization of this environment, capitalism taking over the natural world, the sort of... Uh, the carnage that we leave when we we come into pristine, untouched landscapes, and and ha- became about you know survival and human nature and greed and opportunism and 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 um, and a lot of other different things. I mean, that's what we set out to do when we made this movie. Was it was a very linear, sort of simple story. Also, the question of revenge is is, is revenge something that ultimately can quench man's thirst? What what are we going to get when we put ourselves in this environment? What's going to happen to us when we're there? And Alejandro wanted it to feel almost like a documentary and, and put ourselves in the elements as much as possible and ask ourselves these questions. The making of the movie almost seems as much of a legend already. Um, yeah. The shoot sounds extraordinary. Do you think you'll ever be a part of, of a production like this? No, yeah. I don't think so. I can't... So it takes nine months? Yeah, but more than that, more than that it was... Like I said, it was like neorealism. He wanted it to feel... There is, 
you know, CGI in this movie. It's used very sparingly. But, you know, he really wanted it to feel like virtual reality, like you are submerged in the wilderness. We shot for an hour and a half only at the end of the day, only in natural light that our great cinematographer Chivo wanted to. Why, why was that? He's, he's, as they say, you know, that's when God speaks. That's when, you know, they're, they're painting a canvas every single day, and that's, that's the light that they wanted to capture. And it's, it's you know, favorite. That time period has been historically the favorite time period amongst filmmakers. I can't describe exactly why. Is that quite exactly frustrating as, as an actor, though? Because don't you think, let's get some lights up. Let's, let's do a scene now. <laughs> Come on. It was actually, at first, tough for a lot of us actors to... To, to, to adapt to because there was so much rehearsal. Every day was a rehearsal process, and then we'd shoot this frenetic pace for an hour and a half to try to capture that. But I actually started to adjust to it and love it because you so much of your relationship is with the camera and the other actors and your scenario that when that's answered all day long, it settles you more into what I feel is uh, you know a more instinctive film going experience as an actor you you concentrate on you you know you're not concentrating on a thousand different elements that come into play when you're making a movie it 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 can be very distracting and i i actually grew to love it very much and it it honed me in as far as uh what i wanted to do performance wise how tough was it i mean there are all sorts of stories about what you achieved you've you learned to shoot a musket you built a fire you were eating raw bison liver you were naked in uh, minor temperatures of minus five up to min- filming in minus 40. You were buried in snow. I would, all of that true? And if so, which was the worst moment? Look, as far as a filmmaking experience is concerned, yes, this was the most difficult. But, I mean, you look at the... It's hard because you look at what these guys actually did and, and you look at stories of survival and people are really doing this stuff. But yes, as far as a movie is concerned, it was the most difficult. All that stuff is true. But we got to talk about it at great length. I mean, just the opening sequence of this movie was almost a month of rehearsal in the wilderness to pull off this sequence. And once he set that bar so high, everything that we did from then on needed to have that much preparation, that much thought. And I never got injured making this movie. I never got really hurt at all because we, we, you know, we prepared immensely for every single sequence. So, you know, uh, it was as far as difficulty. Yeah, when you actually have to do it, it's incredibly difficult. But you know the demons that you're up against. So I wonder if that opening sequence. When I was watching the opening sequence, which is um, an extraordinary attack on the on the beach I'll leave it like that I was thinking it sort of resets everything like the first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan reset those kind of movies would you say that's fair? I I would and you know I I didn't it's the testament to working with a master filmmaker you don't even know necessarily what they're trying to capture but he off of his experience with Birdman as you know he has these long sort of um, these long takes that bring you into the mindset of a multitude of different characters, and that's what he was trying to accomplish with that. The onset of shot, that shot is bring you into the headspace of each one of the leads of this movie, so you you get their perspective. I, I had I actually didn't know he was accomp- trying to accomplish that, mm-hmm. but it was it was uh, it was one of those that and the bear sequence. I think set a precedent for the rest of the movie that I, I think 
people have really started talking about, and 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 rightfully so, because I think so much is what he's done in those sequences is incredibly brown groundbreaking cinematically. Uh, the bear attack is extraordinary. What what can you say, explain, detail about what that was like? Obviously, it's best experience once people go and see it in the cinema. Yeah. Can you tell us anything about what you did and how you did it? Uh, as far as... Without the, spoiling the right, magic. As far as, as the specificity of how we did it, Alejandro, our director, has told me implicitly, don't talk too, in too much detail because... You know, they they feel like magicians, so to speak, yeah. and they don't want quite rightly so, right, right, rightfully so. But what I will say is, it was it was a combination of you know me really doing that, <laughs> and and being manipulated by you know an entire stunt team, and then the CGI was added on. And what he's done again with that CGI element in this movie is is a lot different than I think most people have experienced as far as CG is concerned. I think there's oftentimes we feel like there's a weightlessness to CG where anything is possible, mm-hmm. but he's used it in a way that allows you as a, as an audience to feel grounded. You, f- you feel the weight of this animal, this bee, you feel the breath, you feel the sweat, you feel the blood and almost feels like you're some shrew scurrying along, you know, being voyeuristic, watching something that you shouldn't be seeing and you're getting blood splattered in your face. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a visceral experience. It, it really is. Unlike, any action sequence, frankly, that I've ever seen. And that's why people are, and it's the moments that he creates of silence where, where you feel the most tense and the most on the edge of your seat. When you were on the show last time for Wolf of Wall Street, you said that you like polarizing films. Mm -hmm. You like films that don't spoon feed the audience. Mm -hmm. And this presumably is another in that category. Well, hopefully so. I mean, you know, so much, so many different, Meaning, this movie took on so many different meanings when we were doing it. It became, uh, I think that what Alejandro realized is that he wanted to push ourselves to the limit to come up with some answers about what this meant to us. And it took on a lot of different meanings for me. Certainly, you know, as I discussed before, you know, the, the sort of clash of Native American cultures with capitalism where we are today and from an environmental perspective what all this stuff meant to Hugh Glass what survival is in the modern era but none of this is kind of spoon-fed to you like I said I think it's all in the subtext of this movie and I think it's you know it's pertinent to today but uh, it's not overt it's not shoving it in people's faces and I think that some people you know wondered what this movie is about, <laughs> you know, why make this movie? You know, I've heard this, you know, why did you guys do this? And to me, those are the, the type, this type of film is the one that I think will reveal itself more in time. When you got your Golden Globe, congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Um, you made a point of saying that it was for all First Nation people and all indigenous communities around the world. I think you had to learn two Native American languages. Why did you feel it was important to, to make that point? Because I think we've oftentimes think that we've learned from the ignorance of our history, but in a lot of ways, you know, certainly in this, as far as this subject is concerned, we haven't. I got to go to places like the Canadian tar sands. You see stories of what's going on in America. Got to go to South America. You go to Indonesia, places that are uh, beholden to the, you know, 
the natural resources that are to be extracted by corporations also happen to be the most beautiful landscapes in the world with indigenous people that have had a culture there for thousands and thousands of years. And we're seeing systematically the same story happen all over the world. Companies are going in, they're poisoning the rivers, cutting down the trees, and as a result, decimating these indigenous cultures that are the ones that have rights to these lands and th- their culture and their environment is being sacrificed. And, and, you know, it's a sad story, but I, you know, I got to see a lot of this stuff firsthand and that's why I wanted to make a statement about it because it's, it's, un- it's happening in an unprecedented way in, in human history now. It really is. This, our story, Revan, has to do, you know, with the fur trade, the first move out west to extract resources. But we are decimating indigenous lands and natural places of great beauty uh, unlike ever before in in our history. We're speaking just a, a few moments before the Oscar nominations. Will you will you be checking that on on your way out or will you Oh, I'm sure they're all going to be telling me whether it's happened or it's not happened, who's nominated, what's happening. I'm sure we're going to have some sort of discussion about that. Do yeah. you think Did you wake up this morning and think I wonder or not? been there the truth is it is beyond your control and no i mean i of course um, i'd be a fool to sit here and say i'm not wondering whether what's going to happen or <laughs> you know uh uh but you've done the movie you know you've done the movie and and yeah i of course being recognized by your peers is a great thing but it is out of my hands at this moment uh, leonardo always a pleasure to have you on the show thank you so much thank you thank you very much Great questions. And it's great to be able to talk sometimes. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's what radio... radio I know. Instead of them kind of... Which is what they do like with entertainment tonight in America. They basically ask you a couple questions to appease you and make you feel like, oh, great, you're asking about the movie. Then they go, so, did you eat the bison liver yesterday? Did you throw up? Lady Gaga. And then that's all that they throw up. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. That's all of it. So that's actually him as he's leaving the room. We follow him down the corridor. Anything else to say? Anyway, Leonardo talking about The Revenant. Uh, we'll do this the other side of the news as well because there's lots of correspondence. Yeah. Mark goes first. Well, it, um, so I've seen The Revenant twice now, once on a, 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 an award screen, a disc, and once uh, on a Just big screen. Just what that is. Well, you know, coming up to award season, you get sent discs of movies that are, you know, that are may not have opened yet, may not have been previewed yet, but they, you know, they want you to vote for them, so I'm a BAFTA member. And then again in the cinema, and I have to tell you, it is a very different experience in the cinema. The first time around, I thought it was okay, but I wasn't overwhelmed by it. The second time around, I thought, oh, fine, now. I understand it because it certainly is something that needs to be seen on a big screen because Chivo Emmanuel Lubezki, the uh, cinematographer, has achieved something which is quite profound and sort of muscular. Um, after, if you think back to Birdman, when there was that whole thing that there was the, the, the idea that Birdman was a single shot, obviously, obviously it wasn't, and I wasn't a huge fan of Birdman. And I've been very, very, I have to say, agnostic on the subject of Inyaritu ever since, I mean, Morris Perris was great, but since then, I'm, you know, I, he's, he's yet to win me back. But this is a really solid, muscular piece of filming that, as you say, in that opening sequence, it starts at a run and it's, you know, the camera will follow on horseback, on foot, via air, via land, underwater, up, out of the water. Um, 
it is a movie which says to you, look, this is happening in front of you. And in fact, with the exception of, I mean, the grizzly bear thing, yes, obviously, obviously it's a CG grizzly bear because you can't actually throw Leonardo DiCaprio in front of a real bear. Although it's Could have been any circus, maybe. No, no, exactly. Uh, which is a shame he didn't get that role. But actually, but that sequence is, uh, you know, is very, very, very gripping. And, uh, and it works very well, particularly on a big screen. So the first thing I think say is it is a cinematic experience. You have to see it in the cinema to get the, you know, the full force of it. Absolutely. Second thing is it has a kind of Mondo Herzog quality, which is that you do get the sense that, I mean, it's no surprise that this is the year that Leonardo DiCaprio is going to win the Oscar for Best Actor. And one of the reasons is that Oscar voters really like to see actors suffer. And Oh, well, he's... he's yeah, so it's time. like he's in freezing cold water. He's being buried alive. He's, as he said, the thing chomping down on raw bison liver. He's climbing into an animal cog. He's doing all those things that make Oscar voters think, wow, that's what I call a performance, because Oscar voters often don't really know what they're looking for. So what they think is an endurance test is a performance. But what I liked about his performance was it's very physical rather than verbal. It's a matter of telling a story through, you know, through physicality, through the body, through the face, rather than telling it through. I mean, it's interesting you compare this to The Hateful Eight, both cold movies, although, frankly, The Hateful Eight looks like summer holiday in comparison. with. Didn't you feel the chill was really getting into your bones? Didn't you actually start to feel cold whilst watching The Revenant? You know how we talk about the word immersive quite a lot? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If ever, if ever a movie proved that 3D is not necessary to make yeah, an immersive yeah, yeah. movie, go watch this because you will feel as though you've gone through pretty yeah, much all absolutely, this. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, there are, I have reservations. I think some of the stuff going off into sort of spiritual reveries about uh, the mother of his son who sort of appears in a kind you know, kind of offering this is sort of spiritual advice uh, element, hallucination element to the film, which I don't think worked as well. I could have lived without that. It doesn't have the absolutely lethal sort of cutthroat momentum of Mel Gibson's Apocalypto, which I still think is a hugely underrated uh, movie in terms of, you know, physical cinema. But what it does have is Leonardo DiCaprio looking like he's actually in the middle of all this stuff and a very uh, solid set of supporting performances, Donald Gleeson, obviously Tom Hardy, chewing the scenery for all he's worth. But actually, the standout for me in the sporting performances was Will Poulter. I think Will Poulter is, again, does terrific work as this sort of young character, Bridger, who is the naive character who in many ways is the most beleaguered of all of them. And I think it's another example of him very quietly stealing the show from more heavyweight people around him and doing really, really good work. So not perfect, but seen as a cinematic experience, a really solid cinematic experience. Uh, I'm not quite sure about the word solid because it always sounds like... I don't mean it as a criticism. I think you have to reconfigure that. We will talk more about The Revenant. Lots of emails on that subject. Plus, Lenny Abrahamson is going to be our second guest. Uh, Just before the news, Mark was reviewing uh, Revenant and Leonardo DiCaprio was our first guest. Some of your correspondence on this. Phil from Crawley. Uh, Philip Barnett, uh, my fiance and I saw the Revenant preview screening last night at our local overpriced yet understaffed multiplex. Isn't it interesting how those things often go I together? I know, that's so weird. We both came away thinking, what an amazingly crafted film that kept us engaged and captivated for its lengthy running time, which is all the more impressive when compared to the growing amount of blockbusters that vastly overstay their welcome by topping two hours. DiCaprio and Hardy justify their Oscar nominations along with a strong performance from Donald Gleeson. If DiCaprio doesn't finally get his win, then someone at the Academy needs a stern He will do. To. He will do. Brutal yet beautiful. He will um, do. It's his turn as well. Which matters. Well, it does. The it fact is... that he hasn't won for the other four nominations. Yeah. Uh, Robert 
Zagar, North London osteopath and film buff. Tonight, my wife and I went to see a preview of The Revenant. Within a few minutes, my wife Sarah, a vegetarian in every sense of the word, was cowering behind the seats and I wasn't far behind. But we stayed and huddled together. We continued to watch. Slowly, we came back into our seats, mesmerised by the beauty, brutality and ultimately the visceral spirituality of the film. Visceral. In, you can stop that now. What? There are, you can say it that way or you can say it the other way. No, 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 I wasn't... Sorry, I wasn't correcting your pronunciation. I was agreeing with the word. Oh, I see. I thought it was a correction. No, I was agreeing okay. with you. I'll do it again. And ultimately, the visceral spirituality of this film. Visceral. That's what I said. Inyaritu's fusion of the wild Western and magic realism is raw as it is sublime. This is modern filmmaking uh, at its best. Justin Daly in Melbourne. We packed into the large cinema with many other moviegoers. Um, but, uh, yes, that's right. Here we go. Over the next 156 minutes, I watch what turned out to be one of the best films I have ever seen. Evs. And I hardly know where to begin. Beautiful cinematography, captivating performance is coupled up with artistic direction and a stunning musical score. It had been far too long since I had stared at the screen completely unaware of anything going on around me. I flinched at its gore, clung at the suspense and felt dearly for the uh, for the believable characters. It left me truly speechless. DiCaprio was flawless while Tom Hardy gave the second best performance for himself this year, Mad Max being the best. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Doubters there be. Mark Gorman in Washington. Immediately after viewing The Revenant last week, I asked myself several questions. In a style with which we are accustomed, was the cinematography exceptional? Yes. Were the vistas grand and sweeping? Undoubtedly. Did the score add to the film-going experience? Most definitely. Was the film designed from top to bottom to garner multiple awards and heap acting praises on Leonardo and Tom? I'm afraid so. Did I care for the film's characters and what happened to them? Not a bit. Yes, it was grand, sweeping, exceptionally well acted and praiseworthy as a filmmaking experience, but as my wife and I endured over two and a half hours of film-going drudgery, that's all I found myself (laughs) thinking about. I don't think it's drudgery. I mean, I, I, I don't think the film's perfect by any means. And uh, certainly the first time around, I, was, I found it hard to, to, to engage. I think you, it does need to be a big screen experience. But, I do, I, but I, it's a lot of things, but it's not drudgery. I, you used a word uh, in your review just for uh, the Three O'Clock News, overwhelming. And overwhelming, I think, yeah. And I think that word works for this movie and, and Room, which we're going to yeah. be discussing very yeah. shortly. Absolutely. Because as one of our correspondents pointed out, if, in a movie of 156 minutes, most of, you will have looked at your watch. You will have thought 20 minutes too long. I didn't think that once. I thought it was absolutely well, certainly, fabulous. C- certainly when you put this next to Hateful Eight. In which you know that there is the you know the question of length is one which absolutely plays out over hateful eight because you think that first thing you know it's like half an hour before we even start, that's not the feeling with uh, with the revenant. And I don't like. I mean, this is going to be another uh, conversation as well with room about the kind of movie that you think it's going to be. Mm. And because a lot of people have talked about the brutality of revenant, and it is undoubtedly. Brutal. I didn't. I didn't think at any stage that it was gratuitous, or it was. It was just no. I think all that nonsense that was said when it was first screened. You know, I don't. I don't get that at all. It is what it is. It's you know. It's it's it, it's a tough survival movie. I you know that's what it is. I don't have any problem with that at all. Mayo at BBC.co.uk. Uh, 
and uh, we'll talk uh, about room very, very shortly. Lenny Abrahamson is our next guest. However, uh, Creed goes for it. Creed, so who ever thought there was more life in the Rocky franchise, or at least in the Rocky franchise taking a left turn? You know, he'd had Rocky Balboa, and he was called out retirement, and he did the thing, and then it was all finished. So anyway, now, thanks to Ryan Coogler, who is re-teaming with his Fruitvale Station uh, star, Michael B. Jordan, actually, they have breathed life into it. The story is that uh, Michael B. Jordan is Adonis Donny. Johnson, who is the son of Apollo Creed, who was saved from juvenile hall by Apollo Creed's widow. He didn't know his father, but he's grown up with a knowledge of his father. He now wants to become a boxer. And of course, the person he goes to to ask him to train is Rocky. What did you say your name was? Don. Okay. Well, the girl said you wanted to talk about something. Yeah, I want to talk to you about training me. Training. <laughs> I don't do that stuff no more. Sorry about that. Listen, it's getting kind of late, kid, so I'm going to uh, close up. How good was he? Apollo? Yeah, he's great. He's a perfect fighter. Ain't nobody ever better. So how'd you beat him? Time beat him. Time, you know, takes everybody out. It's undefeated. Anyway, I got to lock up. So when up. Mickey died, he came and talked to you, right? Taught you how to quit him. Took you to L.A. Trained you. Brought you back. How do you know all this? How do you think? What are you, like a cousin? He's my father. So I went into this knowing that it had got uh, good notices, but also feeling sort of sceptical about the idea of, uh, you know, of, of, of Rocky coming out again. And actually, it's a really smart, enjoyable way of reinventing the series because what happens is that it effectively it sidelines Rocky slightly is that you know that the Balboa character is now somebody who's you know got this this weight of life and grief and loneliness on him and he is training a sort of you know new blood as it were to take the story in a new direction and yet He's absolutely central to the narrative. Um, Sylvester Stallone has won a Golden Globe, his first, for uh, Best Supporting Actor for his role in this. And I thought it was really well done and really enjoyable and uh, managed to do the thing that we didn't think it was possible to do, which was to take something that you you know, you know really thought they have, they have done every single possible thing they could have done with Rocky and go, actually... There is a new story. And what works about it is, firstly, that it has the thing about the tension about the old guy. I mean, it has history and everything, but it has the tension about the old guy, the guy who's, you know, who's hung up the boxing gloves, the guy who is now, you know, running a restaurant and, you know, feeling aggrieved, going to visit gravestones, somebody who's, you know, Stallone's performance is like that kind of proud but lonely wounded bear. Not the wounded bear from no, not that <laughs> from one. The Revenant, incidentally, and Michael B. Jordan has this this sense of of, of of you know there's a sparkiness, but there's also he's been brought up in a rel- relatively privileged environment, and he his mum doesn't mum doesn't want him to do this, but it's something that he feels he needs to do because he needs to sort of come to terms with who he is. So it's to do with finding his own identity, finding out who he is, finding out where he belongs in the world. Very strong and fairly complicated sport performance by Tessa Thompson, who did such a great job in Dear White People. And then when you get into the fight scenes, which are really, really well shot, I mean, the, 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 by Maurice Alberti, one of the fight scenes, the first one, seems to take place in a single shot, the things, you know, the camera is dancing around the fighters. And it seems to be that we go into the ring, we do the whole fight and then we come out of it. And I found myself thinking, wow, this doesn't feel like, you know, the, 
an old series at all. This feels new and fresh and enjoyable and good solid performances and good solid writing and put together by somebody who, you know, obviously has a great love of and care for the series. And it works and it stands up on its in its own right. It's a really good, enjoyable film. Jason Johnson says uh, George, who's number one son, age 14, Edinburgh Live Wittertainment contributor, yeah. and I saw the film uh, Crete on Tuesday this week. Uh, we came to the film with very different Rocky backgrounds. I am of a certain age, which means I've seen most of the films, loving one, two, and four. Okay, Three yeah. was meh, and five was an abomination. Number one son has seen none of the previous movies. We came out of the movie blown away. Stallone was a revelation. I think this could well be his finest performance and may well bring him a supporting actor Oscar to go with his Golden Globe. And Jordan gave a magnificent performance, completely believable as a boxer, and he made you genuinely care about the character. Uh, As for George, he summed it up by saying, you know I can't stand boxing movies. Well, that was amazing. Well, there we go. There we go. And in a way, in a nutshell, that's it. I mean, I'm not got a, I'm not a huge boxing movie fan, but I really enjoyed Creed. And Paul Angel on this, the Rocky films hold a special place in my heart. I was introduced to them by my father when I was around 10 and uh, were films we watched together reasonably regularly for the next 20 years, even Rocky V, until my father passed away five years ago. As with everyone who loses someone, there is always something, music, poetry, places or items that will remind you of a loved one. And for me, it's the Rocky films. It was then with some trepidation. I sat down to watch the new Creed movie. Would this stand up as part of the Rocky universe and how would it affect the films that I hold so dear? Well, I needn't have worried. I truly enjoyed it. Michael B. Jordan was excellent as Creed's illegitimate child with something to prove and Stallone again that he is a good actor, inhabiting his best character. Crucially, Donnie is not overshadowed by Rocky and it felt both as though his own... um, it felt both like its own beast and part of the wider universe created by the films. Thumbs up, yeah, I think. I know. And, and what a surprise. Who thought that that's what, we, you know, suddenly there'd be another decent Rocky movie, a really well-done Rocky movie. So it's 3.17, and uh, let's have another Oscar nominee uh, to talk to on the programme. What? No, it's fine, but just can we say something before we... There was a thing we were going to say before we go into what do, the, And what did we want to say? Well, what we want to say is that you're... Well, you do your thing first. OK, we, well, we're going to talk to Lenny Abrahamson, who's the director of Room. Yes. So the thing that I wanted to say is just as the, the film critic part of me wants to say this, which is that during the course of your very, very good and very interesting uh, interview with Lenny Abrahamson, which we're about to hear, he talks about the whole of the film. Now, um, if you've seen the trailer of Room, there will be no spoilers in there. But if you haven't, you may wish to uh, listen to the interview after you've seen the film. You may not. You may not consider anything he speaks about as a plot spoiler. What I'm saying is that there may be some people who say, oh, I don't want to know anything other than the premise of the movie, which is the premise of the movie is, is a sort of incarceration premise. OK? Yeah, and the only, but the only things that we talk about in the interview are the things that are in the trailer. In the trailer, absolutely. And Lenny Abramson is also quite clear in saying, he says, those aren't plot spoilers. I want people to know that stuff in advance. Yeah. I just wanted to flag it up. Thank you. Uh, this is based, of course, on Emma Donoghue's hugely successful book. In this clip, uh, the two remarkable lead actors, Brie Larson as Ma and Jacob Tremblay as Jack. Where do you think that old Nick gets our food? From TV by magic. There is no magic. What you see on TV, those are pictures of real things, of real people. It's real stuff. Dora's real for real? No, that's a drawing. Dora is a drawing. The other people have faces like us. Those are pictures of real things. And all the other stuff you see on there, that's real too. That's real oceans, real trees, real cats, dogs. No way! 
would they all fit? They just do. They just fit. They just fit out in the world. Jack, come on. You're so smart. I know that you've been wondering about this. And that's a clip from Room, directed by Lenny Abrahamson. Lenny, how are you? I'm very well. Thanks, Simon. Good afternoon. Thanks very much indeed for joining us on the programme. And Mark's talked about you incessantly, so it's very nice to finally get you on the show. Nice to be here. Um, Many people will know the story uh, of Room because of the extraordinary success of the Emma Donoghue novel. For those who don't, just tell us the story of what happens in your film. So it's a film about a well, mother and son. It's told from the point of view of the little boy who's five years old and has grown up and never known anything other than this single room where he lives with his mother. And I think we gradually learn over the course of the first section of the film what the situation is, and that's that, that, that the mother's being kidnapped and held there. And uh, a couple of years into the kidnapping, she's had this child, and he becomes the focus of her, of her um, efforts, you know, keep him safe, and eventually to start to think about how they might get out of there. And it's a, it, it's a grim premise, but it's, it's not a film about captivity. It's not a film about the crime. It's a film about the relationship, and I suppose about the capacities of children to thrive in even pretty dark and uh, unusual circumstances. Which presumably accounts for the success of the story when it was originally told by, by Emma Donoghue because it's a love story. Really. Exactly. Whereas most people will think that it is a captivity story, that it is going to be, and you're inviting people to go and see a grim movie. How do you get over the message that that's not what you're trying to do here? Well, I mean, you know, conversations like this, I suppose, and also very deliberate decision in the marketing of the film to be pretty clear about where it ends up in other words uh, we're not market it's not a th- it's not, we're not marketing it as some kind of thriller where we hold back the you know do they or don't they survive it, that's not the point of the film the film is really um as you say it's a love story it's a story of escape but it's it's one i think which illuminates really universal aspects of what it is to grow up, of the kind of parent-child bond. Mm-hmm. And it's ultimately uh, a pretty life, a hard-won but life-affirming story. I want to ask you about how you cast the movie in just a second, but how did you cast yourself? How did you, I don't mean you appear in the movie, but how did you get this gig? Because it was such a successful book. There must have been many, many directors who yeah. thought, I want to do that movie. I begged. and <laughs> I That works, does it? That does work. Okay. You know, I begged. I, 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 what I did was I wrote a very long letter to Emma Donoghue, the author. I mean, when I read the novel, um, I was, I, you know, hugely um, moved by it and also, you know, massively desirous of being the person to get to make it but also pretty sure that I wouldn't be because I remember at a certain point it had become a bit of a bestseller and then we somebody told me that Obama had been pictured coming out of a bookstore in Martha's Vineyard with a copy of the book under his arm and I thought to myself well I look forward to seeing what Mr. Spielberg does with the adaptation you know and uh, but I thought well like the least I can do is have a shot and so I wrote a very long document to Emma where I talked a lot about her novel I suppose showing her that I sort of understood the mechanics and, and how it worked and what it really meant and, and then talked a lot about how I felt it could be transposed into a film. I also tried to sort of put as many spoilers in as I could for other directors and other pitches. So it was full of things like people will say that blah. So you, you, you trashed the opposition. Uh, before I even knew who they were, I had a good go. I tried to cover all the bases, yeah. 
And am I right in saying that, that, that she had written the screenplay, she wrote the screenplay, almost immediately she finished the novel. She didn't even wait for the novel to be published, so she didn't even know that the novel was successful before she'd actually done the screenplay herself. Yeah, she thought she, she would, um, she felt that nobody would let her if she didn't sort of do it herself first. And so when I met her, eventually, she showed me the screenplay and said, you know, do you think we can work with this? And it was a very good draft, and, and it proved to be the basis of pretty much a year and a half's work that we did together in, in developing it. But, yeah, it was it – was, and, and, you know, the common wisdom in the industry is, oh, you should never let the author adapt their own novel because the assumption is they're going to be very precious about it and won't want to change anything. And it was not like that at all. It was a very – collaborative relationship and it never felt like she was the one defending the novel and I was trying to sort of rip it out of her hands to make the film. So the story is, uh, as you mentioned, it's it's essentially the story of two people. It's Ma, uh, I think we kind of still think of her as Ma, even mm-hmm. though we discover her name later, played by Brie Larson. And then this extraordinary boy, uh, if you can't find a five, six, seven-year-old to carry a movie, then this movie doesn't get yeah. doesn't get made. And I've spoken to many directors, you know, whatever, the, like Pan, we were talking about Pan to Hugh Jackman. Yeah. Obviously, you need to have a great kid to play Pan. Yeah. This is this is a whole different... Yeah. This is a whole game. order of uh, how did, magnitude. So how did you yeah. find your Jack? We did what you do, which is we did a huge big casting troll across the US and Canada and saw hundreds of boys um, and became really clear that nobody of five was going to be able to play five. I mean, five-year-olds are great at being five, but they're not good at pretending to be. So that really, it really limits the number of kids even who, who remotely are going to be able to do this. They have to be a little bit older, but they have to look younger, and they also have to be hugely talented. And that's a very hard brief when you're looking for unknown. So a huge troll was done, and then this kid popped out of Vancouver um, in Canada, Jake. And on the first video audition that I saw you could see something there and then I sent what did, notes. What did you see? Well, just a capacity to hold the camera. He was still in the in that first version. I wasn't absolutely sure because there was a little bit of the coached about his performance. It was a you know it had that sort of over bright quality that people push kids towards and you see in kids' performances. But there was something about him and certainly a capacity to hold the scene and to a concentration, you know, because a lot of the kids couldn't sit still or you just look and in 10 seconds you knew there was no there was no chance. So I went and I met Jake along with a couple of other kids and I discovered very quickly with him that I, I just was able to take away that sweetness and discover this really lovely, very down-to-earth boy who happens to be immensely talented. And I, I always say that, you know, there must have been a time before Tiger Woods held a golf club and... When he was given it, I'm sure he didn't. He wouldn't have instinctively known how to hold it. But as soon as he's shown, and as soon as he starts to kind of get the feel for the movements, and it's the same with Jake. He, you could see him through the process of making the film, get a firmer grip on these kinds of levers that operate this amazing actorly engine that he has. Are you are you absolutely sure that Brie Larson isn't his actual mother? Because in the movie, not, not only do they look extraordinarily similar. But you really believe that they are mother and son, and it's mother and son throughout the movie, whether it's in room and, and then in the scenes afterwards when it's, it, you know, it, yeah. it is them. You presumably did not want an actress to play Ma, who was a fabulous 
actor, but just then did her scenes and went away. Presumably yeah. she had to be yeah. his mother all the time. Yeah, I mean, part of the brief really for casting that role was to find somebody not just brilliant, but also warm, open, and and with a with a light facility for what they do. In other words, it was never going to work if somebody was like heading off to their trailer between takes or, um, you know, had a had that sort of intense process, which I respect. It's just that in this case, it had to be somebody who who was able to be with him between takes, play with him, and yeah, it was extraordinary. We got them together about a few weeks before we shot. That gave, that gave us enough time, gave them enough time to sort of hang out together in a very unstructured way. And bond, they really bonded and and they're really close. And you can, I think it, yeah, that aspect of the film is is pretty remarkable. I mean, the, the sense of an intense relationship between them is uh, is utterly essential for the story to work. But it's also a pretty hard thing to to, to make happen. How do you direct a seven-year-old? Is it essentially the same skills that you would use on anybody, or do you act, did you actually have to think about it and start again? Uh, it, every possible way, depending on what mood he was in, depending on the kind of scene we were shooting, it ranged from, you know, sometimes almost puppeteering, where you're just you know directing tiny movements and and looks because you know how they're going to work when they're when they're cut, or you know, it's like teaching kids to ride a bike. Suddenly they'll just cycle off having wobbled. And with Jake, there were scenes where I could really talk to him like a, an adult actor, talk about what was going on, talk about the, the moments in the scene where his emotions were changing and he'd be able to just run with that. Takes were very long because rather than cutting um, and doing it again, I would talk him through scenes, go back a few lines. Sometimes I'd, we'd parrot lines, we'd do games where he'd say it, I'd say it back. And we turn it into a sort of joke where I could get his energy up by, you know, I'd call it back to him louder. He'd, I, I dare him to do it back to me even, even more angry or whatever it was. So for me, certainly it's the most intense, challenging thing I've ever done as a director was to, was to shepherd him through that process of, of, of you know, because he's in every single scene. He's in, uh, he's the absolute center of the film. But none of that would have been possible if there wasn't a great actor in there. But it's a seven-year-old actor. The horror of the movie, and I'm using it with a small H because it is not um, a horror film, but the horror is the fact that even though this is a piece of fiction, we know that these stories happen. And in many cases, they're even more horrific than the story that Emma um, has sure. told. And she's made reference to the Fritzl case, which is the facts of which are still... Um, mind-bogglingly mm -hmm. terrible. Um, were you afraid that that's what people would think of and think, I don't want to see that? Yeah, that's the biggest challenge of this film. And, and I have conversations regularly with people after screenings who say, oh, God, I was terrified to come to see this. Um, and now, you know, or I've, I've heard people saying, I've been telling my friends, it's not what you think, mm -hmm. you know. You're safe, go and see it. Because we don't see any abuse taking place. We're with the little boy all the time who is successfully protected by his mother and is in a certain, I think, very grounded way, not in a kind of silly fantasy way, a pretty uh, happy kid. So it's not a film where you watch a child suffering. I mean, uh, but I think that's what's, that's what's easily imagined when you hear the premise. The thing about Emma, Emma's choices in the novel were very smart. She, I mean, 
without sounding sort of silly or glib, she has imagined the best case scenario for a story like this. It's um, a story. It's a situation where the child is protected. It's uh, there's light. There's natural light. They're not in some sort of dungeon. Um, they're they're not chained up. It's they manage to have something like a very circumscribed, albeit very circumscribed. Um, normality within their lives. And we come into the situation seven years into mass captivity. So you're you're looking at a kind of normalized routine. You're not looking at the kind of emotional extremes of the first months of captivity or anything like that. Um, and this, the film is ultimately a kind of parable. Um, it's, it's, it uses this situation to talk about a whole lot of other things, some of which are... are are I think most of which are are generally applicable to the lives that parents and children have. So the challenge has been getting that message out, and and so things like the audience award at, at uh, Toronto was really useful because that was that marks the film as a film that audiences love rather than feel duty bound to see or you know feel morally kind of um, instructed by. It's a film that people actually like. Um, and that's important to me because I think it is a film for an audience. And uh, yeah, once we can get that message across, uh, then then you can see people beginning to sort of put their anxieties to one side and walk through the door. Well, I think you'll have an interesting year, Lenny. Thank you, Simon. Lenny Abrahamson, thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, Lenny Abramson, since we did that interview, obviously nominated for Best Director, Brie Larson for Best Actress in a Leading Role, and Room for Best Film and Best Adapted Screenplay, By Emma Donahue, which yeah. is a pretty extraordinary list. Uh, your reviews and Mark's coming up the other side of the news. Mark goes first. Well, it's not often that I, I sort of feel this way about a film, but I was... I was genuinely, you know, you talked about the use of the word overwhelming before when we were talking about Revenant and you said actually it's something which which applies to both Revenant and Room. And in the case of Room, I was really properly overwhelmed by it. Um, As I keep saying this phrase, I've seen the film twice. Actually, I'm very glad I've seen it twice because the first time I was very worried about what kind of film it was going to be. And having seen it once, then being able to go back and watch it again, knowing that it wasn't. Now, in that interview, Lenny Abramson says very clearly, you know, it's not the film that some people expect. And all the publicity has been very clear. It's not a film about the Fritzl case. It's not a film like uh, Marcus Schleinzer's Michael. It's not a horror movie. It isn't any of those things. And often when a, when, a, when a sort of PR company sort of tries to tell you that about a film, you think, oh, well, they're trying to say, but it's it, absolutely the case. Firstly, if you have any preconception that that's what this film is, it is not that. It is absolutely a film about the relationship between mother and son, between mother and child. And although the film obviously has a relationship in terms of its narrative to appalling real-life cases in the world, it is not... That is not the subject matter of it. I can't stress that enough. I think that Lenny Abramson is a, a really brilliant director. I mean, as you know, I've you know I've loved his work for years. I loved Adam and Paul. I you know I I I really like what Richard did. I was completely knocked out by Frank. He's somebody who seems to me to be a, a very astutely truthful director. He can somehow get to the truth of a subject 
whether it's you know the mad, the musical madness of Frank, or whether it's the sociopathy of what Richard did, or whether it's that kind of you know Beckettian tragedy comedy or, or, of Adam and Paul. He's somebody he's just. Sorry, can you just explain what Beckettian? Well, you know, Beckett. like Samuel Beckett. It's like a kind of waiting for Godot. Um, that sort of going on, and and it, it would be very hard to to pinpoint a distinctive style other than truthfulness. He somehow manages to get to the truth of the matter. And what he manages to do in Room is, firstly, the film genuinely creates that sense of a bubble, that you have the, this uh, woman and this child trapped together in a circumstance which, for her, is a hellish prison. But somehow, through her love for her child, she has made it, for him, into something quite different. She has made it to him for him into a universe, something which goes every way in every direction right up until the end. It's somebody, something which actually has the expanse and possibility of fairy tales. There is a lot of fairy tale going on in this. You know, we, there's, there's stuff about uh, Alice in Wonderland. He's reading Lewis Carroll. At one point, she talks to him about the Count of Monte Cristo. There are, in the later stages of the film, baying packs, uh, which I think, again, is a sort of fairy tale reference. And all that stuff is going on. It's to do with, it's not just to do with the power of imagination transcending all for reality. It's to do with the idea that this kind of bubble of love that she has created around the child has actually made the child's world into the thing. And now, one of the things you could have done if you were making this film is to go, well, in that case, let's use all this CG. Let's go sort of Lovely Bones way. Let's go the way that Peter Jackson did in Lovely Bones. Let's kind of visualise, oh, you know, the imagination up through the sky. The film doesn't do that. What the film does is it trusts its two central characters, Brie Larson and Jacob Tremblay, both of whom I think are quite perfect, quite perfect in their roles. It trusts them to show us the world through their eyes. The other thing that's important is that one of the things that's happening in the story is that she is protecting him from the horror of the situation that they find themselves in. And the film, in many ways, protects us in the same way, not by being sort of dewy-eyed or sentimental, but rather with the steely glare of something which is not going to resort to exploitation. And again, that's something else that you need to know about it. It is not an exploitative film, again, as he was talking about in the interview. It is not a film which is in any way interested in exploiting that situation. What it is in fact doing is somehow getting under the skin of this relationship in a way which is so profound, which is so well judged, that you come out of it with all those adjectives uplifting, life-affirming, um, you know, profoundly humane. I think it's a real technical feat that when you're in that enclosed space, you get a sense of this larger space, which is to do with the way in which the cinematography works, close yet wide. You do get the feeling of the, you know, the possible expansiveness of it. Also, I, something which hasn't been picked up on enough, Stephen Rennick's score which I think does a brilliant job of negotiating the tonal changes in the film in the early stages, sort of playing up the, the, the you know, the, almost the domestic air. Later on, giving us this kind of otherworldly, slightly alien-feeling, chiming sounds. I think all of that works very well. I don't think not enough attention has been paid to the way in which the music plays. And then, again, from listening to that interview... The, the the care and attention that went into firstly getting that performance out of Jacob Tremblay and making you know get, making the right decisions to get the right reactions out of him, but the bond that you see between his character and Brie Larson's character is completely convincing. And I at times was, I mean, I, I know I think about this a lot. I at times was 
minded to think about Steven Spielberg's AI. There's a moment when we see his foot touching the floor and it seemed to me, it, it wasn't deliberate instantly, I know for a fact that it wasn't deliberate, but um, it seemed to me to echo a scene from AI, which again is another film about a mother and child bond, which again has that thing about Pinocchio in the background and the, the desire to become a real boy. And one of the things that the film does, which any parent will recognise, is the discussion of is it real or is it TV? Is it, is it, is it for real or is it make-believe? That, you know, the, uh, the clip that you played at the beginning of that, when, when, when she's explaining to him that there is a whole world outside of this world that he knows because up until now she hasn't told him about it, but now that he's five, she is because she's saying, you know, we have to get out into the world. And that thing about, and he's saying, one of the reactions when she, she starts telling him about the, the world, he says, liar, liar, pants on fire. It's that discussion about what's real, what's unreal, what's fiction, what's truth. And I think the, the movie deals with all of those things, but it doesn't deal with it in a way that feels like it's ladling it on or, or you know, somehow hiding behind something. It does it in a way which is completely natural, completely believable. I mean, I, I really thought it was something else. I thought it was genuinely overwhelming and uh, and, uh, and profoundly moving. Sean Bell uh, on this email. I saw Room last October at a film festival. It stayed vividly with me for months, offering an interesting companion piece to my other favourite film of last year, Inside Out. Both films are set in interior spaces, which are perceived as both confined and infinite. Jack sees Room as the whole world that went in every direction and never finished, yeah, while that... Riley's mind contains a labyrinth of memories. Most touchingly, both films deal with the difficult adjustments children's fa children face when growing up and letting go of the familiar. Abrahamson has a knack for teasing out uncomfortable truths. In 2014, Frank... Isn't that interesting, again, he said about truth, because that was the, the thing I said, that he's truthful above all things. Uh, in Frank, he explored the romantic lie that mental illness sparks creativity when most often it subverts and stifles it. Similarly, in Room, he takes the audience to some dark places, but he also provides one of the most startlingly visceral moments in recent cinema when we are made to feel the five-year-old protagonist's fear and wonder. It is an unforgettable moment of pure cinema. Thank you, Sean. Claire in Brighton. I've never felt moved to write to the programme before. That was until I went to the local world of Sydney to see a preview of Room, which is a masterpiece. I know we're only a couple of weeks into the year, but it will take something very special to beat this as the best film of 2016. Brie Larson is amazing. Jacob Tremblay is a future star. I found myself unable to get out of my seat as the credits rolled and had yes. to sit and contemplate for a moment before leaving the cinema. And the more I've thought about it during the week, the more I love it. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I... I, I felt exactly the same thing. When I went back to see it a second time, I just sat there while the credits played out. William Gray, I went into this film not knowing the subject and at the end I was unable to move for 15 minutes. Again, someone who's... I think cinemas better prepare for people just hanging around afterwards. Yeah, let's hope they don't do the thing about turning the lights on during the end I credits. Think, I think you know. they almost certainly will. This has to be the best movie I have ever seen, says William. The acting, wow. the direction, wow. the script, wow. everything was brilliant. It's never played for sentiment, although you cry most of the way through it, and at the end no question is left unanswered in your mind. There is an enormous amount of joy in the film. There is pain. The subject is so horrifying, but the story is one of love, a mother's love. Wish I could write this better, says William, but thinking about this film, words fail me. As a work of art, Oscar is too small an award for this movie. This is genius. Wow. I mean, how brilliant to hear such impassioned reactions and how brilliant to hear, you know, somebody saying, I, you know, I find it hard to put it into it. Believe me, 
you know, this is my job. I feel exact. I feel exactly the same way. You kind of feel like it is very, very hard to express what it is about. What's so great? Sorry, I'm just tying myself. That's up. right. James Wilson. Uh, my parents for Christmas got me a membership for, uh, to the BFI, and finally, after wading through what was on offer and finding out Mark's live show was fully booked, I said, <laughs> are you fully booked? <laughs> I settled on a preview of Room, having not read the book or heard about the news story and only seen the trailer. I wasn't truly. I wasn't fully informed as to the subject matter. Regardless, I found Room to be one of the most moving pieces of cinema in recent memory. Although the Oscars aren't the true mark of a great actor, I think we all want Brie Larson to win. Also, can't wait to see if Jacob Tremblay will defy the odds and become something special as he has every chance. We need to move on because you have other things to do. Okay, But isn't that great? Isn't that... I mean, that's the kind of reaction... I, and 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 just to use the overwhelming word again, Sorry. it's impossible to come up with two movies. I think which are more contrasting than Revenant and Room, yes. but they both will overwhelm in completely different ways. One very interior, the other one extremely exterior. Anyway, TV movie of the week, which we need oh, yes. to do now. Uh, Jim Fletcher uh, says, "The Man Who Fell to Earth," a fascinating, totally unique, and strange film with a wonderful performance from David Bowie. We lost a truly remarkable artist this week. He was one of a kind. Lee Davis, it has to be The Man Who Fell to Earth. It's such an odd film with great cinematography and a great central performance, very dated, which only adds to my enjoyment of it. It would be a very fitting tribute to one of the great icons of modern times. Um, uh, Ian Miles, Mark would choose The Man Who Fell to Earth. Ticks all the right boxes, bit of a mystery as to why it's on the horror channel, though. I would like to see this and two films either side, Rush and Betty Blue, had the obligatory poster for Betty Blue, both classics in their genre. Anyway, most people are going to say um, The Man Who Fell to Earth, which I think is what you're going to choose. Yeah. I mean, I am going for The Man Who Fell to Earth, which is on, uh, you say, the Horror Channel at 12.35, Monday night, Tuesday morning. I love the fact that they actually now put that in so that I understand how the, the thing works on, the, on Tuesday the 19th. The Man Who Fell to Earth is a, is a wonderful piece of work. It's a brilliant bit of casting. As you know, Nick Rogue got the idea to cast David Bowie after having watched the documentary Cracked Actor. And it is one of those uh, performances in which it's almost like Bowie had been rehearsing the role uh, in, you know, in real life. And I remember interviewing Rogue about this and he said, well, the people say, you know, why work with rock stars? Rock stars are actors. That's what they do. They create characters. And I love The Man Who Fell to Earth. I think it it really works. Funnily enough, I read the novel again just recently and I was surprised by how close the novel is the novel is to the film and yet what rogue brings to it is that sort of time shifted sense of you know hallucinatory semi quasi magic realism and what bowie brings to it is you just think yeah that is absolutely the most perfect performance of course you know after the news on uh was it monday now um i i tweeted a, some photographs from his filmography i originally i just put up a photograph of, of him from into the night which i which I loved because I'm a huge Barry fan, and I was I was you know genuinely very upset by by by, by that news, and I loved the new the, the new material instantly, and then I just started finding all these other st- and you forget just how wide ranging his acting is. So you're putting up a still from Baal, and then of course it's you know a still from Prestige, and then something from Manifel to Earth, and you know then uh, something from Zoolander. It's, you know, such a such a wide ranging screen presence, and and it was it was just it was lovely revisiting those many different facets and those many different characters because that was what he did. He he played characters, and uh, 
So anyway, the manifold to Earth, I think, is a is a really good choice, and 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 you know, I hope people people will have seen it already, but I hope people watch it again and just remember what a great, great, great piece of work it is. And incidentally, can we put on the playlist "Always Crashing in the Same Car"? Because when Bowie was doing Manifold to Earth. Some of the music that he was working on uh, that was going to be originally on the film and then wasn't ended up on side two of Low. And I was watching Radio 1, the Chris Pettit movie, the fantastic Chris Pettit British road movie the other day, and that's got Always Crashing in the Same Car in it. And it's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant song. So can we put that on the playlist? Uh, I think that's there. And on the subject of... um Great actors who we've lost this week. Uh, many, many people sending us emails about Alan Rickman, but just this one from Nicholas Brent. I wanted to share how devastated I was about the passing of Alan Rickman. It really has been a nasty start to the year, but I don't think Alan will want us to be sad. Quite the opposite, in fact. As a huge fan, I'm still struggling to digest the news, but as way of tribute last night, I broke my once-a-year rule and watched him in his first film role as Hans Gruber in Die Hard. Tonight, I plan to watch Love Actually. Here's an Emma Thompson storyline is arguably the best of the film. A phenomenal actor who will be sorely missed and never forgotten. Rest in peace, says Nicholas Brent. I mean, it's absolutely true. I watched Love Actually again because I watched it every Christmas and that that story with uh, with his character and Emma Thompson's character is the heart and soul of the film, as opposed to all the stuff with you know, Hugh Grant and the Prime Minister. But then you just look at you know Galaxy Quest, Harry Potter, Silver Snape, True Madly Deeply, Michael Collins, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Die Hard. And then, you know, his work behind the camera as well. He was on the programme a year or so ago, uh, actually when we were off, uh, when um, Little Chaos came out, because I'd interviewed him when that played at the London Film Festival. And he he came on the programme with, it was uh, Edith and James King. And I think we, I think the programme tweeted the link to that interview. We'll retweet it again if you want to have a listen to it, because it was, you know, it was the, you know, really interesting interview about a film which didn't get quite the sort of attention that perhaps it should have got. But um, it, I only, I only met him very briefly uh, and he was, Everything you'd want him to be he was charming and intelligent and a, and a star. Uh, mayo at bbc.co.uk for the email. So if you want to send us uh, some correspondence anytime during the week, the podcast is going to be available very shortly in case you've missed any of the interviews. Michael Caine's going to be on the show next week. Michael Caine? Michael Caine's going to be on. For you. Is there, is there going to be time, by the way, for you to mention what probably is going to be the movie of the week? Uh, what, so do you want to do that now? <laughs> I. Well, look, let's. That's very good. Do you, I mean, do, you, do you want to do why? Do you want to do why we should be doing it? Okay. I mean, it's I mean, not. It's, it's not. It's not movie of the week. Okay. But I just wanted to mention that breakdown. Okay, so there's a movie called Breakdown, which is directed by Johnny Malachy and uh, uh, stars Craig Fairbrass. And the story is that Craig Fairbrass is this guy who works for this organisation that um, he's, a, he's an assassin, right? Yeah. He's a killer. And uh, James Cosmo is his sort of top guy. But he's starting to feel bad about all the violence and killing that he has Never to do. Never mind about all that. No, hang on, let me finish. He's starting to feel bad about all the violence and killing that he has to do. So he decides that he wants to get out of all the violence and killing. But the only way for him to get out is that he has to kill a whole bunch more people Fair enough. in order to do it. It is, it is an absolutely bog standard brick crime you know generic off the peg with a with a little bit of of uh, uh, psychological underpinning and an awful lot of geezery running around and it's not very good but anyway apart from that but there's a brilliant performance in it from my daughter my daughter is in it it's her debut so Three cheers for Natasha because she's there as uh, and and, and three she, cheers for Natasha, but two stars for yeah, and, and she doesn't kill anybody. No, and she doesn't cut off anyone's fingers. No, in the movie. No. So anyway, that's that's not really movie of the week, but it's just I'm just saying. I know, and I, and uh, I'm just there. I'm just being as I would always be honest when I tell Might you. Might you get a curve? It's not good.
but she's great. Uh, but but obviously, obviously, uh, what else? But, 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 but sadly, not great enough to save the film. To but, save the but, movie. But there we go. Uh, what else we got? Uh, should we very quickly do uh, Dragon Blade? So uh, Dragon Blade is the movie was actually was a big hit uh, in China. Although over here, it's getting a relatively small theatrical release. Daniel Lee um, and uh, Jackie Chan, Han Dynasty narrative, which basically gives us Jackie Chan. And uh, John Cusack as a Roman soldier together at last on the Silk Road. Here's a clip. I just want to look at it. I've never seen a Chinese sword. What's the Chinese word for revenge? What? Someone hurts you or your family. You kill them. Um, revenge. Uh, venge- vengeance is... Um, vengeance. Uh, Bao Chou. Why you want Bao Chou? This is not your business. Anything happened in Silk Road. It's my business. Bao Chou makes more hate. Today we meet. We are friends. I want to help you. When we leave tomorrow, I may never see you again. You make a friend today, you lose one tomorrow. You get the general tone. So, I mean, funnily enough, it's... uh... It's it's got enough sweeping epic vistas to justify it being seen uh, on the cinema screen. They sort of have formed this unlikely bond, and then Adrian Brody turns up as Tiberius in a performance which, frankly, wouldn't have looked out of place in Tinto Brass's Caligula. Um, it's not it's not rip roaringly brilliant, but it's actually quite passably entertaining. Uh, the action sequences, particularly those which uh, Jackie Chan directed the action stuff, uh, are done with his you know his usual uh, brio and uh, wit. It is there is something quite funny about seeing John Cusack uh, and Adrian Brody in those particular roles. But I've always liked Jackie Chan as a screen presence. I find him very, very likable and very enjoyable. So it, you know, it's fine. It's, it's as I said, it's going to get a it's, it's a much smaller thing here than it than it than it has been elsewhere, where it's been actually a pretty substantial hit. And it's fine. It's fine. Uh, there is a, a chance for you to hear a shortened version. Apparently, it's Why possible would you want to, to. I know. Uh, tomorrow night at eight o'clock, the podcast is going to be available uh, very, very shortly for you to download. This has been a something else production for BBC Radio Five Live. As I mentioned, Michael Caine is going to be on the show next week talking about his film Youth. And in the meantime, well, it's—I know it's not going to be close in your mind—but movie of the week, Room. Uh, thank you very much indeed for listening. Stand by because it's Drive coming next on Five Live. Well, can I just say what I, I, it's? I, I, I feel foolish saying this, but talking about room, I, I, I really, I, I, I really did. I think at one point I'm, I'm going to, I'm just going to burst into tears. Well, I was afraid you were going to, and, I, and not because, not out of some stupidness, but just because it is really, really. Even talking about it brings brings it back, and it is such a, prof- it's such a profoundly moving film, such a profoundly moving film. I'm glad you like it as well. We we we're, we're reaching a new area of detente. Well, yes, I would. Yes, I would. I. What's interesting about both Revenant and Room is that I didn't particularly look forward to either <laughs> for completely different reasons, yeah. and I was wrong on both counts. As I think is very clear from uh, the interview with Lenny Abrahamson, it's not the movie that you're. I was yeah. in, talking no, no, to no, some no, friends absolutely. last night. They said, "I'm not. I, I really don't fancy that movie." I said, "Well, you're wrong. You are absolutely wrong. Yeah, yeah. You will enjoy it." And. And similarly with Revenant, it, yes, it's all the things that you've heard, but when you see it, I think everyone will be fine. Anyway, a long time ago, we were talking... In a galaxy far, far away. Yeah, a long time ago, we were talking about Snoopy 
and so just remind me how we got into that. Well, it's the peanuts. Oh, it's the peanuts. Movie. Movie. Okay, fine. It wasn't the complete left movie. turn. It was very fine. Okay. It was at least a legitimate connection. So the first version of Snoopy versus the Red Baron. Yes. Is this one from 1966. Okay, this is the Royal Guardsman. Classic 66 sound. <laughs> you can hear them smiling as they sing. And their mop tops. Why is the guy counting in German in the background? <laughs> no, that's really helped. All together now. 20, 30, 40, 50 or more. The bloody red baron was... Well, that was cool, so... 80 men died and... Okay, so... But that's not the version that okay. I remember. So, but that, that's the, so 1966, the Royal Guardsman uh, did that. And, uh, and, <laughs> and very, we're still uh, holding then, them to account for it. And then it. someone in 1973... Hotshot. ...clearly thought, you know that Royal Guardsman classic, which everybody loves when you're hanging out at the milk bar? Was it a hit the first yeah, time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it, was, it was a hit. Small hit. But, you know. Small hit. Uh, they thought, okay, we, should we have another go? At the milk bar, is this a, like in a kind of Clockwork Orange kind of way? In a, no, Are they having really. Malocco Plus? Nothing else to do in this. No, okay, fine. Uh, so, they, so the Hot Shorts came up with the Hot Shorts. The Hot, sh- the hot, the shorts. hot shorts. They came up with this. This is the version I remember. Why they decided to put in a little bit of reggae in there? I'm not too it's sure. Got a bit scar, right. isn't it? Oh no. <laughs> I don't think David Rodigan's been featuring this uh, very recently, but anyway, I'll suggest it to him. Oh, the 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 yeah, this is the version I remember. In the clear blue skies over Germany Came a roaring and a thunder And never heard Like the screaming sound of the When I heard the first version, I definitely thought Needs more trombone. Does it? it with this, with the, you know... But why is it a reggae? Why is this a reggae song? I think the, the question more is why. Anyway, let's see what they do to the chorus. Got nothing to do with Snoopy, of course. But anyway, there you go. Does Snoopy actually feature in the song at some point? It's not that Snoopy, is it? I don't think so. Well, what Snoopy is it? I don't know. It's a different Snoopy. It's called Snoopy versus the Red Baron. No, it's a different Snoopy. Okay, sorry. Okay, just stop that awful noise. What, sorry. What do you mean? You mean it's well, apparently, not? Apparently, it was inspired by Peanuts, but it's not. It's just. Well, what other Snoopy? Hang on, Snoopy. That's Snoopy. Hang on, Snoopy. Snoop John B. That got to number four. The Hot Shots. The Royal Guardsman number six. But what, what do you mean it's another Snoopy? I'm actually, I'm sorry, I'm genuinely What I'm trying to say now. is, if you understand. were a fan of Snoopy... I'm as like in, Father Dougal. Tell me in, what's going on. As in Peanuts. Yes. That song has nothing to do with the Peanuts cartoon, but apparently was loosely inspired by it. But actually, yeah, so it's not a different Snoopy. Well, it kind of is. Well, what? A different dog? Yeah, it is. It's a different reggae dog. You're just making this up. I am just making this up, yeah. But it's not. If you love Snoopy, yeah. if you love Peanuts, it's got you clearly. You love Snoopy like I love. Snoopy. You know that cartoon. Everyone can see that that, that cartoon strip. Yeah, Has that got anything thing. to do? No. With a, a dog fight with Baron von Richthofen. No. No, it's got nothing to do with it. No. So it's got nothing to do with a dog. 
No, it's got another cartoon dog. But, no, nothing but, to do with it at all. N- nothing. 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 But what's the record called? Snoopy versus the Red Dragon, which is just Red the Dragon? Nonsense. Yeah, and that. Snoopy versus Red the Red Barry. Dragon. So it's like Hannibal Lecter yep. in a plane having a fight with a cartoon dog. Now that I would pay good money to see. That could be a screenplay. Let's work on that. What else were we going to do? I've got no idea. I feel that we've departed. Oh, uh, yes, we could do. We do. It's time for you to do the introduction to the. Well, you introduce it. No, because you have okay. to introduce the thing because you have to talk into the music. So, okay. Yeah. And now it's time for our DVD of the week. Don't do that. Hey, everybody. Hey. Hey, it's a balanced movie collection leading to a balanced emotional life. Thus says the great teacher, his flappiness, Dr. Kermode. At the Wintertainment Cinema Centre, we use the science of DVD of the Week to readjust your energy cores through a regular dose of DVD releases. With minimal effort and considerable financial investment, you too can ascend the 78 levels of the Collector's Pyramid, the only path to an evenly mounted shelf. Who writes this guff? (laughs) Last week, Mark chose Sir Tom Chuckles Courtney in the brilliant and now Oscar-nominated 45 years. What will he go for this time? Well, Martin Marple says... How do you readjust your energy cores? Thanks, Martin. Not helpful. Scott Bennett, in order to achieve this balanced DVD collection, will you be including the pieces week by week to make my own DVD saw by inserting tab A? None of this is helping. Martin Chatterton. No DVD collection would be complete without a slice of Russ Mayer, so I think Mark will pick Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which, to add interest, has Roger Ebert as co-screenwriter, no less. But wait a minute. Is that the sound of one hand flapping? Andrew Hanley says... Hiroshima Mon Amour has gone straight onto the watch list. I'll vie for Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. But what is our DVD of the week? Well, I'm going to go um, off-piste here because uh, a few weeks ago, just before we we came off-air for the Christmas holidays, uh, we had included Love and Mercy on the list, but it got put back. And it then came out on the 4th when we weren't on-air. The programme was being done. I only just realised this has happened. So I'm going to do DVD of the two weeks ago. Is that, is that a new feature, the, DVD of the of two, two weeks, weeks ago, ago, which okay. is Love and Mercy? And the, the reason I'm going to do this is I watched it again last night. I'm, I'm obviously in a watching movies twice kind of mood, mood at the moment. Love and Mercy is the story of Brian Wilson told in a bifurcated fashion. The oh, first bifurcated, split in two. Uh, the first, Thanks. there's one section which is in the 1960s with Paul Dano doing the most unbelievable uh, rendition of Brian Wilson. Uncanny how much he looks like him. Second in the 1980s, John Cusack, less so, but the two halves of the story are intertwined, so we move backwards and forwards in time. And I think it's really superb. I really, I mean, watching the stuff with which they're doing the sessions for Pet Sounds and Smile and when they're working with the, you know, the Wrecking Crew... What they've done is they've reconstructed the studio thing and actually had musicians in there to play the music. Those sequences are brilliant. Paul Dano's performance is quite breathtaking. A real shame it's been overlooked uh, uh, at the uh, Oscars uh, because I think it's one of the best performances of the year. And actually, I hadn't realised the first time I saw it just how moving the stuff with John Cusack is. So the second time round, it seemed more of a piece, more coherent, more of a whole. And it's like Grace of My Heart. It's one of those films that is a wonderful, wonderful, insightful rock and roll movie that didn't get the attention that it deserves. So, Grace of My Heart was the very first one, I think, that we did for the DVD collection. Now bring it up to date with Love and Mercy, and those two should sit side by side on your DVD shelf. 
Do you know, this week I'm actually going to get rid of my DVD shelf. I know this is slightly undermining the feature, but I've decided there is actually no room in the house for a DVD shelf. So what are you going to do? I'm going to fill it with books and CDs. But what are you going to do with the DVDs? Put them in a box. And put the box? In the attic. Are you going to put... And then what are you going to do with the attic? Seal it up. Okay, so basically your house is just going to become like this... (laughs) The top of your house is going to become basically like an... And a sealed DVD collection. I know it won't make any difference to your house, but I just think because you're slightly, you know, critically like that. But very few houses have room for a DVD shelf anymore. Well, my house, the big problem is that not only have we got, a, you know, an entire, well, it's not a DVD shelf, it's a whole load of DVD shelves. We've also got up in the attic a whole bunch of DVDs that haven't got any space because I haven't yet thrown out the VHSs. So I've, st- I've still got Betamaxes up there. Do you have any rules? I've about- got an original really? Betamax driller killer. Do we have any rules about what? About when you get rid of stuff. Like, if you haven't watched it for 10 years. Well, no, because... I had this then... conversation with Bob Harris about vinyl. Yeah. Day, so. What? That he throws out vinyl? No, is there all... Sometimes years? I think... I haven't listened to that CD for five years. It's time to go. I'm never going to listen to it. I'm going to get rid no, of it. No, no, but that's not true. Because, for example, I, just the other day, I was in I'm in my, my down... You know, in, in, in the front room. And I thought, you know, I haven't listened to Yachts Without Radar in a very Ever. long time. Oh. No. I haven't listened to them in a very long time because I love the yachts. And I went straight to the vinyl collection and there it was, pristine, because I like to keep vinyl in good condition. Whacked on side one, brilliant. And that then led me back to the first yachts album, which was fantastic. And then right next to that very good. was Reckless Eric. No. Yes, because it's a kind of... Al- what do you throw out? Nothing. Never. Well, it's. I mean, I. You've believe, got to throw something out. I know. I know. I have too much clutter, too much stuff in my life. But I'm going to be sitting up there in the going. Can I throw away that copy of Driller Killer? No, it's too. What was important. the last thing you threw away? Um. What the last thing that I owned and that I threw away? Uh-huh. No, no. I mean, not not like a tissue or you know, but uh, no, not uh, like an empty can of beans. No, that's no. no, that's not what you meant. You meant what's the last thing that I actually threw? The away? last film. The last film that I threw away. Yes. The last film that you got rid of because you thought, I haven't got space for this in my life. This appears to be an emotionally traumatic question for you. I, this is terrible. I honestly, I've even got laser discs. And I don't have a laser disc player, but I don't think I could throw away the laser disc of Crash. And I don't think I could throw away the laser disc box collection of, of, of Brazil. Okay, what you're saying is you've never thrown a film away. Um, I prefer not to. You've never thrown a film away. But you said, you said it like it's a bad thing. And the worst thing is I don't know where any of them are. I mean, I know they're all in the loft, but they're not like in alphabetical order. All I know is that if somebody says to me, have you got the original uh, video copy of Last House on the Left? Yeah, where is it? I don't know. It's up there somewhere. I know it's there. I know it's there, but I don't know. I can't, I can't watch it. Actually, I can't. I can't imagine. You must live in a palace. I can't imagine a time when I would sit down and think, "I've got a bit of time for it. I'll just watch Last House on the Left." <laughs> it's not that kind of movie. How many rooms in your house? Thousands. I bet there's thousands. No, it's just got a loft. Anyway, this is very interesting. I think it's de- you know decluttering is what everyone's doing. But I know, I know, not I know, in I know. your house. Very feng shui. Feng- no, that's feng- just cobblers. What cobblers use feng shui? Because it's very they, important to make shoes in an environment which is no chi, all that kind of stuff. And, I know, I know. I just, I was just slightly surprised by the fact that since we weren't broadcasting live to the nation, you used a, you used a, a word that could be taken as an obscenity. Nobody thinks cobblers is an obscenity. Excuse me, if if he said it on air, no. Let's ask our. Hang t- on, hang on. Are you saying that if I said a load of cobblers on air, I wouldn't have to go on a course? No. See, cobblers is all right. 
Since when did cobblers become all right? It's like... It's the same thing. No, it's not. No. No, that is going to get bleeped. You can't say that. So cobblers is all right, but isn't. Correct. You're going to go on a course. Thanks for listening. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live.